to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. So this last week in particular, I was in Iowa. Um, I don't know if I've told you this, but my wife's family is from northwest, uh, northwestern Iowa. And um, people ask, what town? I say, well, the closest town is maybe a few miles down the road. It's about 800 people. There's a blinking red light. And, um, and it's called Akron. So people say, oh, Akron, Ohio. No, that's quite a big city in um, another state. So <laughs> totally different uh, Akron. But uh, it's wonderful because my father-in-law is a farmer, and he's a very old-fashioned, almost like the way you picture farming like 50 years ago, only he does it that way on purpose. You know, he just, he loves it. It's a way of life for him. And so we love going there because our cell phones don't really work, and uh, only last year did they get high-speed internet at their house, again, mostly by choice. And, you know, so not the cell phone bit, not that they have anything to say about that, but... um, I will say, though, while you all were enjoying your wonderful Colorado weather here, it was about 95% humidity over there, and this uh, little insect called a mosquito that we don't really have here in Colorado. They have lots of over there. Um, We had an interesting conversation, though, one of the nights I was talking with my father-in-law, and we were talking about uh, the farm and and all the stuff that he has to do. And and so every time I go, I feel like I learn something new in the off chance that I should one day become a farmer. I'm sort of filing this knowledge away that you can just imagine, right? Um, So, but it's fascinating conversations to me. And so we were talking about stuff and he was telling me about how some of his friends um, have moved to the area and they have, they came because they had this a romantic notion of farming, sort of like I do. And, and they, they came because they'd maybe grown up in the area and then moved out to the city and gotten their big job at this big business and everything was going good and they decided to retire early and go back and farm, you know. And so he tells me about the, these friends of his that he has and he says the romantic farmers are interesting because they always have a lot of emergencies. You know, like they'll, 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 they'll show up and say, Hang on, I didn't expect that it was going to snow two feet. Now I have nothing for my cows to eat and all this stuff, you know. And, and so different ones of the, you know, the long-time farmers have to sort of come to their rescue. And uh, so he was explaining to me the way he does it instead. And he was saying, you know, Glenn, I don't really have a, a lot to do right now, but I, I've got to see ahead and see what's coming and, and realize that, look, if I want my cows to eat in the winter, and he's explaining this to me, and this is a whole, you know, obviously different world for me, but he's saying, okay, look, the, you know, the cattle need, they need some hay, so I've got to bale some hay and, and store it up and keep it dry out of the rains that we've had this summer, and I've also got to find a field that's been harvested of all the corn so that the cows can graze in the corn stalks and, and eat that, you know, at certain points, and, but the, the trick for him is, uh, his own cornfields that aren't quite big enough, and so he's got to make arrangements with another farmer and say, hey, can I let my cattle graze in your uh, cornfields after you've already harvested them so they can eat? And, and, but in order to do that, he's got to say, hey, if they say yes and work it out, then he's got to agree to put f- a fence up around this other person's cornfield, okay? So any of you from, like, a farming background, like, just register with any of you? Yeah, good. Five of you. All right. Um, me too, right? So, so I'm sitting there and I'm listening and I'm learning and I, I immediately start thinking. And he says, okay, Glenn, what I basically do is I, if I would just go build fe- a fence 
around this person's cornfield that I'm going to need this winter, if I just spend an hour or two each day doing that right now for about a month, then it'll all be ready. And then when the time comes that I need to feed my cattle something, it's all ready. It's already prepared. And he was telling me about how he had just gone up to the other, you know, section of land that he farms and he was checking into his combine and making sure everything's working there and he's saying you know look it's so that when it's harvest time I can go I know I can go in turn the engine on and it's gonna run and he's like you know you got to see ahead see ahead of what's coming and anticipate it and I, I I thought to myself you know I probably shouldn't tell him that this summer like every summer I waited until my lawn got too long and I needed to mow it and I went to turn on my lawnmower and it was out of gas and it didn't work and I probably shouldn't tell him that story, you know. But it's so the opposite of of how we live because we're used to whatever we need, we can get it and we can find a solution so we're never stuck. But I wonder sometimes if if we as Christians are are sometimes uh, a, a little bit like the romantic farmer in the sense that we, we have this picture of what God wants us to be. You know, we talked last week about becoming mature believers. And so we've, you know, we've got this, this vision or this picture of, yeah, I want to be that kind of Christian or I want to be this sort of person. And I want to be mature. And a couple weeks ago, we talked about marriage and, and communicating your, your requests versus letting them settle into unsaid expectations and all of that. And we, we have in our minds this picture of, yeah, yeah, that's the person I, I want to be and this is what it looks like to be mature and all of that. But how are we going to get there? And I wonder if we're like the, 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 the romantic farmer thing because it's sort of like we say, well, I, I want to I be able to make the right decision in the, in the critical moment. When the, when the moment of truth happens, I want to be ready and I want to make the right decision and all of this stuff. But we sort of think that it's just going to happen. And if you listen to how Christians talk about this, how are we going to get to this place that we know God wants us to be at, this place of maturity? When you listen to some Christians, it sounds like usually they have one or two uh, options in mind, or one or two uh, ideas about it. And, I, and the way I'm going to describe it is a bit of a caricature of it, but you get the sense. One group of people might say, oh, well, you know, I don't need to worry about it because I'm just going to trust that the Holy Spirit's going to lead me, and when the time comes, it's just going to feel natural, and I'll just do it spontaneously. And, and when that, that critical moment happens, I'm not going to tell a lie. I'll tell the truth, or I'm not going to make this decision. I'll make that decision, and it's just going to be natural and spontaneous if only I would just listen to my heart. And any of us who have lived at all can say, I don't think that's really how it works. We've probably, all of us have been in some version of a moment where we thought that the Holy Spirit was just going to awaken us and something was just going to happen naturally and it was just going to work. And it didn't. Instead, what came naturally were things like anger and and greed or selfishness or or, or pride. And and, and really, if you listen to to your heart, it would be quite a self-driven sort of thing. And then you maybe have another group that says, well, you know, listen, I, I don't know how to prepare myself for those moments. And so what I do is I just, I just memorize a bunch of rules. I have a bunch of pithy one-liners that I've heard preachers say, and then I just memorize it. And then I'll just say, well, God, and you, know, and, and you can think of the, the slogans you've heard, you know, well, God doesn't, you know, equip or call the equipped, he equips the called or whatever. And there's, all, there's, there's truth in various ones of those statements, but all you've got is a set of rules and, and catchy phrases And you're hoping that in that moment of crisis, you can scroll through your brain quick enough and find one of those rules and and figure it out. That too seems like a sketchy plan. 
Paul in Ephesians has something different in mind for us. He's given us this picture of maturity, but he's also highlighting an approach, a pathway, a way that we're going to grow up in Christ. How is this going to happen exactly? And before we get to Ephesians 5, I want to start with this one verse in Ephesians 4, because do you remember me telling you that Ephesians, in a very real sense, is kind of split in two halves, and I don't mean that once, you, once you've got the first half down, you don't need it anymore for the second half. I don't mean that. But just in terms of Paul's um, subjects, the way he's organized this letter, it kind of seems like it's in two halves. And chapters 1, 2, and 3 is Paul saying, look, this is God's massive plan of salvation. This is, this is cosmic. This is God going to, the, the, the Jesus, one day all things in heaven and on earth are going to be brought together in him. And you're thinking, whoa, this is massive. And remember, we've talked about our inheritance and, and new heaven and new earth and all this stuff that's just way out there and it's massive and it's stuff that's true about God and what he's going to do. And this second half, four, five, and six, all of a sudden sounds, all, you know, like Paul is kind of saying, okay, let's break it down. Let's talk about how you should live. Let's talk about marriage. Let's talk about relationships. Let's talk about being a child and being a parent and all this stuff. But there's this verse in Ephesians 4.1. And of course, when Paul wrote it, there were no verses and there were no chapter markings. It was all one fluid letter. And which, by the way, if you're, if you're just a little Bible study sort of tip, the, one of the best ways to read Paul's letters or any of the New Testament letters is to read them the way you'd read any letter, all the way through in one sitting. You know, you don't get a letter from your aunt or something and say, you know, Dear Tim, hope you are well. <sighs> what did she mean by that? You, know, it's like, you can read the whole letter, and then you can go back over the paragraphs that you weren't sure about or whatever. You know, it's the same thing with it. Read it all the way through, and then start to think, what is Paul doing here? And if you were to read Ephesians all the way through, Ephesians 4.1 is a clear pivot. It's a clear change because this is what he says. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Now this word worthy is interesting. This word worthy is the Greek word axios, which literally means a balancing scale. And think of, picture a balancing, a balance beam on one scale you've got, you know, maybe a, a bag of coins and on the other you've got this bag of gold or whatever, or a bag of flour or something, and you're trying to measure it out until it becomes balanced. That's what the word axios means. Walk worthy of your calling. What Paul is saying is your calling is on one side of the balance and your walking is on the other side of the balance and make sure they are equal weight. Make sure they're of equal weight. So Paul is saying, look, I've just spent all this time for us, the first three chapters of of this letter, telling you what your calling is. And don't you think that calling has some weight to it? Yes? I mean, it's got, the stuff we've been talking, it's got major weight to it. And so Paul's saying, look, you know the weight of your calling. Now let me tell you, let the weight of your walking balance it. Let it be equal weight. Don't let it be that your, your calling is so heavy and it's so, wow, this massive thing we're called to be the people of God. We are the one household of faith. We are the family of God. All the metaphors Paul uses in Ephesians 3, we are all this, wow, the weightiness of our calling and then the flimsiness of our walking. He said, don't do that. Don't be the kind of people that are, you're part of this massive story and wow, it's got some weight to it, but your walking's kind of, eh, you know. Be the kind of people where your walking and your calling are of equal weight. 
And that's, he, he, that's how he's setting us up for this whole second half of this letter. That's the pivot verse for the second half. And so then he goes on, and we pick it up uh, for this week in Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. And live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I love the phrasing even in this verse 1. Be imitators of God. Did you know that God intends for us to look like him? That he actually does. But you know, my, my concern is we don't want to talk about that because we want to make sure that people understand that they're accepted by God. And there's a, there's a, I understand, that's important, we need to know that, we need to know that we're not performing, but there's so much emphasis, on, hey, hey man, listen, don't tell me how I'm supposed to live, because I just need you to tell me that I'm accepted by God. But notice that, ba- that Paul says, as dearly loved children, you're already children of God. This is not about acceptance or rejection. This is not about becoming a child of God. No, he's as dearly loved, just since you are God's children, start to imitate him. Now, my son is now almost nine months old, and he is, in my opinion, the most beautiful baby boy I've ever seen. And it's a fact, uh, really. And I love my son, and, 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 but the, he, here's the thing, is he can't get around very well right now. Uh, in fact, his method of movement is and you set him on the floor, is to just sort of roll, you know, and, and he'll roll. Now, my son is a dearly loved child of mine and Holly's. We love him dearly. But you know, cr- rolling around from one area of the living room to the other is fine at nine months old. At nine years old, if that's his chosen method of movement, we would have a problem. Would he, now, would he, you know, hey, Dad, going to school, you know, like, okay, dude. No, I, you know, hey, do whatever you want, kid, because you're dearly loved. You see the foolishness of that? No parent in their right mind would say, hey, I don't want you to not be accepted. I just want you to know you're accepted. You don't have to learn to walk. Psh, walking. Overrated. What are these things? Legs? I mean, who's ever, you know, don't worry about that. Don't worry about imitating what a man and a woman, a grown adult does. Don't worry about imitating what your mother and father do. Just, just roll around. You're dearly loved. Excuse me? In fact, because he's my child, all the more I'll say, let me teach you how to walk. And later, let me teach you how to ride a bike. And later, let me call my friend who can teach you how to th- build tools and, you know, build stuff and use power tools. Build tools, see? <laughs> call a friend to teach myself. Yeah. But the point is, the point is, God intends for us to become like him. He really does. And it has nothing to do with whether you're accepted or rejected as his child. You are children of God. When you've said yes to Christ, you're already in the family. You're our, you are his son. You are his daughter. Can we, can we do this, church? If we're going to grow up in Christ, we've got to just settle that. I am a son of and a daughter or a daughter of God. I am a child of God. I belong to settle that. It's true. It's real. I believe it. And because it's true, now by the power of the Holy Spirit and by his grace at work in me, I want to be imitators of God. 
Because if we don't settle this thing, oh, am I rejected? Or are you, what are you saying? That if I don't live right, that I'm rejected? No, you're a child of God. But get on, let's get on with the imitating, shall we? We can't seem to grow up in church because we can't seem to get past this thing of if you are a child of God, you're already in. You're already loved. You're already accepted. And now the Father wants you to look like his son. That's what Paul is saying. How do we do this? Paul goes on here in Ephesians 5, 3 to 7, and I'm not going to read this, but just by way of context leading up to the verse that we're going to discuss tonight. Ephesians 5, 3 to 7, Paul goes on, he starts giving this list of of, of, of stuff. You know, he starts talking about um, sexual immorality and he starts talking about specific behaviors and all this stuff. And you might be saying, now wait a second. Sounds like Paul's given us a bunch of rules for living and am I supposed to memorize all this stuff? And all that? Is that Paul's goal that we would just carry around a rule sheet? To, well, let me consult the rule. You know, is that what these, the Bible is? Is a rule book? No. Paul's ultimate goal for us is deeper and more uh, and richer than, than rules. And you say, well then why? Why give us these quote-unquote, ethical instructions. Why give us, why are there so many, in fact, if you look through Paul's letters, why are there so many sections about behavior and ethics? Why, why be so specific about some things? He talks a lot about sexual morality and immorality. Why be so specific about some things and why leave other things out? What's he trying to do? Is it because other things don't matter? Or these are the only things that matter? What's he trying to do? Maybe it's helpful to think of it this way. When my, anytime my wife and I get a new babysitter, we have three kids, a five-year-old, three-and-a-half-year-old, and then our nine-month-old. Anytime we get a, babys- a new babysitter, we know the person, but that person doesn't yet know um, the schedule that the kids are on and what they eat and all this stuff. And so typically what my wife does, because she's just organized, is she'll write out like a five-page document of like what their daily schedule is and, and she updates it or it used to more you know when we had only two kids but used to keep it real current where it was like okay here's what they're eating now and here's what they, they like and, and here's the rules and don't you know and, and you would imagine that as a babysitter you think gee you know here's your rule book you know what, what is this about it's really the goal is that over time the babysitter kind of gets to know the kids and gets to know the house and gets to know the fridge and gets to know where the diapers are and all that They get to know all that stuff and then they'll do it a little bit more intuitively, right? But on the first night, we don't want to come home and find that like, you know, whatever, all they ate was things they could find in the freezer or, you know, or, or that they stayed up all night eating candy because, you know, whatever, and they're watching movies and it's, it's midnight and they're still awake, you know. So to avoid a train wreck, we give him some rules. It's a bit like this for Paul because his ultimate goal is that we'll learn something that I'm going to get to that'll be our main point for tonight. He wants us to learn this thing. But in the meantime, as we are, lear- as we are learning that, he wants us to avoid shipwreck. He wants us to avoid a train wreck. And so he's going to say, he's going to say okay, here, look, here's some specific things that I don't want it to ruin the church in Ephesus. I don't want it to ruin your families. I don't want it to... So, listen, I know you're new to the faith. Let me give you a few quick guidelines of things that are going to prevent you from, you know, and as you continue on this journey, you're going to develop stronger habits and better character, and you're going to develop this thing called wisdom. And once you develop that, you'll be on your way, and, and it'll help you in this. But, but in the meantime, let me give you a few guidelines. Does that make sense? That's, I think, the sense for Paul's ethical instructions. And so then we get to verse 15, and this is our text for tonight. 
Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Here's the key. For our calling and our walking to be of equal weight, we must learn how to live wisely. For our calling and our walking to be of equal weight, we've got to learn how to live wisely. Now, what does that mean? Let's, let's take this, these two verses and let's kind of break it down you know, phrase by phrase and talk about it. Not as unwise, he says. Be very careful how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. One of the best things I ever heard in, in the last few years was this idea of thinking through a new decision grid. I, like many of you, had the decision grid of right versus wrong. And to say, well, hey, hey look, uh, you know, is this technically right or is this technically wrong? Or, uh, but I realized that part of the key to maturing in Christ and in life, which they go together, is learning that your decision grid is not right versus wrong, but your decision grid becomes wise versus foolish. Because there's a difference. You might say to someone, hey, you know, I've just chosen not to do that. And they'll say, well, what, are you saying that's wrong? Say, no, I'm not saying it's wrong, but for me, it just seems a bit foolish. Because let me ask you a question. Is it easier to fall off the edge when you're here or when you're here? Here, right? But all of these steps are not wrong. In fact, nothing's wrong until you get to there, let's say. And so if you had only right versus wrong as your grid, you'd say, well, no, that's not wrong. No, there's nothing wrong with that. Nope, I'm not under the law. I'm not, oh, doggone it, I messed up again. Well, eh, oh, well, try harder next time. Well, no, I mean, this isn't wrong. I know other people don't do it. It's not wrong, though. It's not wrong. Oh, man, I messed up again. Jesus, please help me, Lord. Okay, well, yep, no, I'm not going to change that. That's not wrong. You can't tell me to stop that. Don't be a legalist. Oh, I keep, why do I keep making this me But if you think through the lens of wise versus foolish, you'd say, okay, wait a second, this isn't wrong, but I know where this is going to lead, and I just, you know what, I don't want to go there. Now, it's, it brings me great joy to see that Sophia is starting to learn this in some small way. Uh, it's really funny. I, I'll, we'll say to her something like, hey, Sophia, don't, you know, you, we don't want you getting into, you know, whatever, the, the scotch tape. That's her latest thing. It's like taking rolls of scotch tape and like... She's building this project, you know, it's just her house is covered with scotch tape. And so Holly came back from the store the other day and bought more scotch tape. He said, Sophia, let's not play with scotch tape, let's play with, you know, anything else. And she's like, Mom, I think what you need to do is put it up high so I can't see it. <laughs> okay, you know. It's like, because if I see it, she says, I'm going to want it, you know. Like, well, that's pretty wise, Sophia. And that's actually what Sophia means, is wisdom. So, so, but but that, that is the truth, isn't it? Because you've got to, like my father-in-law said, you've got to see ahead. Being wise is about seeing ahead and saying, wait a second, I, I don't know. This, is, this could lead to, you know what? Uh, you can say that I'm being legalistic, whatever. I just, to be honest, it just seems unwise to me. And, and you do that. Andy Stanley um, wrote this book. Jeff and I, I and mean, a bunch of us read, yeah, he called it, Andy Stanley called it the best question ever. And I don't know if it's that, but sure, it's a good question. Uh, but best question ever is a great title for a book, and that's what he called it. But 
For him, the best question ever is this. Ask yourself, in light of my past experiences, my present circumstances, and my future goals, what is the wise thing to do? Isn't that a great question? And, it, and it's particular to you and your journey. In light of my past experience, my present circumstances, and my future goals, what the Holy Spirit is doing in our marriage, in our life, in our... What's the wise thing to do? Because your grid is no longer... Listen, if you want to grow up in Christ, your grid is no longer... Hey, is this a sin? That's not your grid anymore. Your grid is, is this wise? Is this going to take me where I want to go? Is this going to help me mature? Is this going to help me love with the Christ-like kind of... Is that it? And you start to think through that grid. Ask, in light of my past experiences, present circumstances, and future goals, what is the wise thing to do? The next phrase in this verse, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. That, that idea, making the most of every opportunity, uh, the phrase is a business phrase. It's literally, buy it up. Buy it up. Buy up the time. It's kind of like playing Monopoly and you land on Broadway and, and you know, it's like... You know, you're the first one. No one's bought any property yet, and you've got, you know, the other. Like, okay, let's buy it. Buy it up. Buy up this moment. Buy up the opportunity. Take, take the opportunity because the days are evil. I wonder if we could think about the moments, and this is, this is an ongoing journey for me, and I suspect for all of us, but imagine if in the moment where there is something rising up in you, like irritation or like offense or and you say wait a second this is like landing on Broadway this is an opportunity that I need to buy up this is a moment I need to seize to make the wise decision because the truth is those kinds of opportunities are around us all the time there are there are many many small small moments where you say okay what are the opportunities what are the moments What, what are the little things that I could make the most of and by making the most of these small moments, it's going to prepare me for later moments. Think about that. So, well, okay, um, and they happen every day. Opportunities to make a wise decision in terms of what you say and what you don't say about someone else. Opportunities to make a wise decision about how we spend money. Opportunities to make a wise decision about uh, who we build relationships with. All those sorts of things. There's these moments to make those decisions. Can we see the opportunities? Can we buy them up? Can we take them? In January, um, January 15th, last year, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 took off from New York's LaGuardia Airport, and um, a flock of geese ran into both engines of the plane. You remember this story. And Captain Sullenberger skillfully, artfully landed the plane on the Hudson. You remember the papers the next day called it, what they call it? The miracle on the Hudson. And certainly, it's hard to deny that there was probably something providential about it. Because there have been other water landings that have been attempted that have gone miserably poorly, you know, gone gone bad. But to call it completely a miracle is um, maybe a clue into how we wish things to be as a culture. We like to imagine that in the moment of crisis, you're going to be there. That in that moment where you need to make the right decision, it's just going to come natural, baby, because the Holy Spirit's working in me. And it's just spontaneous, because the Lord is in me. I just got to listen to my heart. 
Sullenberger first learned to fly when he was 16 years old. He later attended the Air Force Academy right over here. He was one of about a dozen freshmen selected to be in the glider program. He excelled at it. By the next year, he was one of the glider instructors. When he graduated from the Air Force Academy, they sent him off to Purdue University for post-grad studies. After that, he became a fighter pilot for five years, earned the rank of captain, became a commercial pilot in 1980. He had 29 years of commercial flying experience when the incident on the Hudson happened. He'd been flying for over 40 years. I'm looking here at Bruce and I'm looking here at Dean, both pilots, you know, American and United. You guys, you can envision all the choices, all the little decisions, all the things that, have, that go into making the right choices in a situation like that. You think being a fighter pilot ha- helped him to be calm in moments of stress? Sure it did. You think learning to be a, a, a fly gliders and be a glider instructor helped him to glide a gigantic metal bird down onto a freezing cold river? You think that might have helped Sure it did. You think being a, a faithful Christian committed at his church and all this stuff, you think that might have helped him form the character that it took to be the last man off the plane that day? You think all that might have helped? Sure it was a miracle in, in one sense, but in another sense, Sully had been preparing for this moment his whole life. Making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. You see what's coming, or maybe you don't even see what's coming, but you see that, look, it's, the days are evil, time is short, I don't know what's ha- coming ahead, but look, I want to be ready for it, and so in order to be ready for it, I'm going to make the habit of wise decisions here and now. Make the, dis- make the right choices while you still can, until it becomes a habit, so when the crisis comes, you say, you know what, I am doing the right thing, not quite naturally, but maybe second nature, because it's been learned by the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Look for every opportunity to make wise decisions and choose wisdom until it becomes a habit. Look for every opportunity to make wise decisions and choose it until it becomes a habit. The latter part of verse 17, understand what the Lord's will is. I love that phrase. Understand, figure out, think about what the Lord's will is. I hope this isn't bad news to you, but living and growing up as a Christian will require some thinking. (laughs) It's going to require some effort and some work, and is it grace that's working in us? Of course it's grace that's working in us. And is it really the Holy Spirit? Of course it's the Holy Spirit that's at work in us, but the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in us is that we're making, able to make this effort. Over and over again, Paul talks about changing the way we think. In fact, in Ephesians 4, there's a section there where he says, start to think differently and put off certain behaviors and put on certain other behaviors. And look, it's not going to feel natural. It is not what you do instinctively. But if you keep choosing this, if you keep understanding what the Lord's will is and then doing that, over time it becomes second nature. That's what we're after, to be grown up so that it becomes second nature. Ephesians 5, 8 through 14, this is um, part of the, the in-between verses before our text. He says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Figure out what pleases the Lord. 
that echoes with understand what God's, think about this, search it out, talk to people, learn this stuff. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them for the shameful to even mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. That is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You know what it's like? It's a little bit like living as if it's daytime, when all around it's nighttime. And some of you are like, sweet, that's what I do every weekend. Uh, Well, uh, next month, uh, middle of September, I'm going to fly to Malaysia. And I know Dean used to do that that route a lot with United, you know. But but I'm going to fly and do a conference in Malaysia. And and to prepare, they're about 15 hours ahead. And so when it's night here, it's day there. And one of the best ways to prepare yourself for it is we usually take a night flight out, you know, from L.A. or San Francisco, goes through Hong Kong or Taiwan or one of those, you know, depending on the route. And, and because it's a night flight, night in the U.S., but I know it's day in Malaysia, one of the best things to do to prepare myself for it is to stay awake on that first flight. Read a book or talk with a friend or watch the movie, whatever. Stay awake in that first flight. To live like it's day when all around you it's night. That's what Paul is saying. Hey, look. Look, look, the days are evil. There's darkness around us. All around you, people are living like it's nighttime and they're doing stuff that, that's shameful to even talk about and all stuff. But you, you live like day is breaking. You live like the sun is rising. You live because you know what's coming. You see what's coming. Like a good farmer, you see ahead and you're ready for it. How many of you have ever um, tried to learn the guitar? How many of you have succeeded at learning the guitar? Yeah, good for you. It's interesting that there's more that have tried than, you know, what happened, guys? The guitar is, is a fun instrument, but it's, it's pretty lousy at first. I was six years old, and my father first tried to get me to take guitar lessons and totally did not work because I was tinier than this, you know. No, I just couldn't, you know. Oh, really, actually more like this, you know. Anyway, Whatever. So, so, uh, but, but eventually I started to learn guitar and it was like, there you go. You know, the D chord at first sounded kind of like, or maybe, you know, and then you kind of get all the strings at the same time, you don't, you know, and then you're like, well, don't, you know, I'm going to stick this out, man. You're like, I'm going to learn another chord. You're like, oh, one day I can play D, you know, and then, and then you say, oh, maybe I can play G. No, can't play G. Let's stick with D. You know? What can I sing? You know, I am free to run. <laughs> yeah, you know, I can play a D chord, you know. And then, and then one day you get brave and you're like, okay, I've got D, I've got G. I am free to dance. You're like, yeah, yeah, all right. You know, I am, you know. And then you get, then you say, I am going to master the F chord. Now, if you've ever tried to play guitar, you know the dreaded F chord, which was for me for years sounded like this. And then one day you just keep trying and you keep playing, you keep playing, you keep playing, you keep playing. Wait a second, there it is. All right, all right. I can go to C now. I can go to that G. I know that, you know. Then you think, I'm going to volunteer to lead worship at my small group. (laughs) I'm ready. Come on, baby. Throw it at me. What do you got? Thousand times I've 
I quit. I just don't have it. No. What do you do? You keep working at it, right? You keep practicing. And one day, playing these chords, not only sound decent, but you can change chords, and you can sing and play at the same time. And all of a sudden, you're not really thinking about it as much. You were, you were really thinking about it. You were trying to figure out how to please the Lord. You were trying to understand the, Lord, the Lord's will, but you kept working at it, and then it became second nature. I think that's a little bit like what this is meant to be, that this habit of wisdom is not natural right now. Buying up the time, making the most of every opportunity, seizing the most to make wise choices, ah, just that's too hard. I, sure, but don't quit because the Holy Spirit is working in you. Because the Holy Spirit is at work. In fact, the very next verse, be filled with the Spirit. Let Him keep filling you because He's with you. The greatest teacher in the world, God, the, the, the Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit is in you working. So, so come on, keep, keep working at this. Putting off and putting on. Putting off and putting on. Making, figuring out what pleases the Lord. Understanding His will is making the wise choice. And one day it becomes more and more habit. And you say, you know what? I'm, I am beginning to make the most of every opportunity. I am beginning to live as wise and unwise. And you look back and you think, wow, here we go. I'm living as if it's day while all around me it's night. Amen?